Our text for today comes from Revelation chapter 3 as we continue in the study of the book of Revelation. And this is the sixth letter of Jesus to the churches, to the church in Philadelphia. So now hear God's holy word. And to the children and to the angel and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these uh, amazing Uh, precious words from our Savior to his churches. We pray that we would hear as uh, they were, just as they were read on the day uh, that that they were communicated to these churches, so may we hear with the same ears. May we uh, be filled with your Spirit as we hear and receive this instruction and make correction where we need to make it, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Father, give me a, uh, an articulate way of speaking so that we can uh, hear this and communicate this clearly today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you remember the last time you locked yourself out of your house or locked yourself out of your car? What'd that feel like? That second when you realize what you just did, that, uh, that when the blood drains from your face and you think, I just, I just did the stupidest thing. I am, I, am such, I am such a fool. Now what am I going to do? This little sense of panic that you think, I've, I've got to get out of this. I've, I've created a real big problem for myself here. I've, I've locked my keys in the car with the engine running before. I don't know if any of y'all done that, but I've, I've got that achievement badge in life. I've done that before. Thankfully, I was able to get a coat hanger. It was back when you could still get a coat hanger down there and pop up the thing. But uh, I've done that. When Bailey was little, she locked herself in the car with Sarah's keys in the middle of Louisiana summer. Thankfully, I was able to get there with an extra set of keys before anybody had to break a window. But that was terrifying. Lock a, a kid locks herself in the car and then she's just laughing. I mean, it's like, unlock the door. And she doesn't know what's going on. Just um, When I was seven or eight one time, I was playing outside in my grandparents' land. They had several acres And uh, I was staying with my grandma, and my grandma just decided to leave the house. She locked up the house, and she just left. And I was there playing, and I didn't know anybody had left. I was was there by myself, and I tried the door, and the car was gone. And I was stuck there by myself. And then this terrible storm came. The trees were whipping around, and I had to hide out in the garage. And when you're a kid, you make things bigger than than what they actually are. But in my mind, in my memory, I think of how terrifying it was to be all alone, without a phone, without a way to get anybody, and uh, huddle in the garage until somebody came back home. It was terrifying for me as a kid. What's frustrating 
When you're locked out, when you are separated from your, your keys, your keys are locked in, you're locked out. The thing you need to open the door is just on the other side, except there, there's a barrier between you. There's a lock between you and the thing that you need. And unless somebody else has a key or somebody else is there to help you, uh, or, or someone, uh, if you've got a key hid somewhere, unless there's some plan B, you're going to have to take desperate measures to get back on the other side of that locked door. Now, now take that sense of separation and anxiety that we've all felt, that little moment of panic. Take that, that feeling of being shut out and multiply it by about 10,000. And maybe you can get a little sense of an idea of what it was like for Adam and Eve when they were locked on the other side of the garden sanctuary of Eden. When God placed an angel with a flaming sword at the gate of the garden sanctuary and they were, they were locked out. Everything you know, if, if put yourself in Adam and Eve's position in that moment. Everything you've ever known is on the other side of that gate. Everything you know is on the other side of that guard. Life, communion, rest, fellowship, food, peace, Everything is on the other side and you're over here on this side and there is a barrier in the way, a flaming sword, by the way. And now the only way you're going to get back into fellowship, rest, life, communion, the only way you're going to get back into fellowship with God is the very same way, by fire and the sword. The flaming sword is there for a reason because the way back into fellowship is going to be through the fire and through the sword. An animal is going to have to be cut up and burned under the old covenant for you to get back in there. So what a sense of loss, what a, what a gnawing ache in their stomachs of being, of being cut off and shut out, of being locked out. You talk about regret, you talk about feeling stupid, you, you, you talk about feeling a sense of loss, what they must have felt. What's even more painful about this is that Adam was given guardianship over the garden to begin with. Adam was established as the guardian for the garden. Adam was to be the door. He was the protector and keeper of the garden. That's what God told him to do. He said, dress it and keep it. Now the word keep means to protect. It means to guard. Some of you young people have read books about castles and you've studied castles. In the medieval castle, the very center tower, the stronghold in the middle was called the what? It's called the keep, right? Some of you have, have studied that and you've read about that. To keep something is to guard, it's to protect. And so Adam's job in, in dressing and keeping the garden was to protect it, to keep bad things out, to keep pure things in. One of the things he was supposed to keep out, one of the things he was charged to keep out would have been the serpent. If a serpent comes into the garden, you're going to have to guard and defend the bride. But Adam didn't do that. He didn't protect the garden. He didn't protect the bride. In fact, he allows her to carry on a conversation with the serpent. He lets her eat first. Let's just see what happens. Let's just hang back. Let's see if she dies. That's a real chivalrous gentleman there, right? Let's, let's see if she uh, has the curse on her. And then when she doesn't die, then he goes ahead and eats too. So because of this, guardianship and protection over the sanctuary, access to holy things is taken away from Adam and given to the angels. Now, later on, priests uh, dress like angels, acting like angels. Priests are given the job of guardianship under the old covenant. Levites camp around the tabernacle to protect it. The high priest has a, a, an ornamental suit of armor that we've studied before, right? He has a breastplate. He's got a, he's got a helmet. He's got a sword. He has God's 
armor. He is a protector. He is God's champion uh, to protect holy things. Um, at least one Levite has a spear. Remember Phineas, who we read about a couple of weeks ago, has a, has a spear. And in the kingdom area, uh, in the kingdom era, the temple has an arsenal of shields and spears for protection. And it's, it's not like they're being overprotective over the sanctuary, over the temple, over the tabernacle. It's not like they're taking things too far because when God takes Ezekiel up to look at the heavenly city and up to look at the heavenly temple, God tells Ezekiel to measure the gates and measure the doorways and measure the walls. Ezekiel spends two chapters, chapter 40 and chapter 41, describing the gates of the temple court in heaven. He describes the doorways and the guard posts all over the temple. Why does the Holy Spirit spend two chapters of ink, two chapters of space, describing the gates and the doors and the guard posts of the heavenly temple? Well, that indicates to us that the subject of protection and guardianship over the sanctuary is vitally important. It is important that we have guards. It is important that we have walls and gates and doors, and God's kingdom has gates and doors and walls. So under the old covenant, the priest had access and he had guardianship, but when we get to the new covenant and the work of Jesus, the whole church is now invited into the sanctuary. The whole church is granted access. We are all priests, and we are restored to the office that God gave Adam. We are restored to the office of keeping and guarding. This happens when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. He, he delegates that authority, but Jesus doesn't, um, Jesus doesn't uh, absolve himself of any responsibility. Jesus is still the door, right? He, Jesus is the uh, ultimate door. He is the access point. Jesus says as much. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we've already read at the beginning of Revelation, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus is the gatekeeper. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the protector and the guardian. So in Revelation, we've seen this image. We've seen this, this uh, visage of Jesus. He stands all aflame in Revelation with a sword. He is the greater Adam. He is the greater guardian angel. He is the greater gatekeeper. Now Jesus comes to reveal himself to this church in Philadelphia, and he identifies himself as the gatekeeper. I am the one, he says, who opens and no one shuts. And I shut and no one opens. What does that mean? When Jesus opens a door, you can't shut it. Doesn't, you get 10 guys. You can't close it. You can't lock it. You can't bar it. You're wasting your energy if Jesus opens a door. And when Jesus locks a door, it's shut. It's closed. You, you can't crowbar it open. You, can't, you don't have access when he shuts the door. Now, why does he say this? And why does he come to this church talking about doors and opening and closing? In fact, the, the whole of his communication in Philadelphia has this, this theme of guardianship and gatekeeping. Well, this would be particularly encouraging to these first century Christians because they're used to being shut out. They're used to being locked out. The false gate gatekeepers of the synagogues have opposed Jesus. They've opposed the disciples of Jesus. They're confident of their own righteousness and their own standing before God. And so they are free to exclude the righteous. The most heartbreaking picture of this comes in John 9, when Jesus heals the blind man. You remember the blind man goes back to the synagogue and what do they do? Do they rejoice with him that now he can see? 
What do they do? They kick him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him. They run him out and they declare boldly, if anybody else follows Jesus, they're out too. They are cast out. So they cast out the blind man and cast out his family. If anybody else uh, trusts Jesus, they're threatened to be kicked out too. See, why, why do they do this? Well, the synagogue does this because they believe that they have the keys. They think they're the true Israel. But in fact, they're disqualified. They are excluded. It's Jesus who has opened a door and they can't shut it. The the tables have been turned. The blind man has one door slammed in his face and he comes out, the formerly blind man, right? The, The formerly blind man has one door slammed in his face and he comes out and he finds Jesus opening another door, the door to the kingdom that he can freely walk through. So here in uh, his communication to Philadelphia, Jesus uh, answers the question, who is the true steward of the kingdom of God? Who is the true guardian angel? Who is the one who admits and excludes? It's not the leaders of the synagogues. It's not the Judaizers. It's not those who are trying to impose Jewish customs and and, uh, extra biblical traditions over the top of the gospel. It's not those, it is the church. In fact, If those at the synagogue want into the sanctuary, if they want communion with God, they're going to have to come out of the door of the synagogue. They're going to have to walk out of the synagogue and they're going to have to leave their doomed temple and they're going to have to enter the door of the church. They have to get up from their own table, which now Paul calls the table of demons. It's a table of idolatry. And they're going to have to come and sit down at the table that Jesus has established in the church. So now this Jesus, this keeper of the doors, he says to this particular church in verse 8 of uh, chapter 3, he says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. This is different from what he said to the last church uh, in Sardis that we read last week. For Sardis, it sounded like the window of opportunity was closing. It sounded like they were near dead. Their opportunities for repentance and restoration were about to die. Their expiration date is coming up. But here in this church, because they've held fast, Jesus is opening more doors of opportunity, perhaps giving them new possibilities for ministry or a way to greater success, more influence uh, through the gospel to their city, more, more opportunities through the preaching of the gospel. And this is, uh, Paul talked about this a a lot. Paul spoke like this often. He he talked in several places. You remember that Paul talks about doors being opened for him uh, for the preaching of the gospel. He asked the Colossians, Paul says, pray for me that a door would be opened. Um, And so for the church, Jesus commends them, this church, Jesus commends them because it sounds as if he's opened doors for them and they've walked through. They've taken the opportunities. They've seized the opportunities that that he's given them. And he says, he commends them. He encourages them. He says, you've got a little strength. You've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. I gave you little opportunities to be faithful and to step out, to take my hand. And you did it. And you've had success. Now I'm going to give you bigger opportunities. I'm going to open bigger doors. The Lord seems to work this way for churches and families, for institutions. Uh, the Lord gives you a little bit of chance to stretch, right? He gives, you, he gives you an opportunity to be faithful and to take a risk and, and to step out and to take his hand. And when you do that, when you step out in obedience and you keep his word, you don't deny his name, he gives you something a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. But, but if you have an open door and you retreat, 
it seems that not only do you lose that opportunity, not only does that door close, but maybe all the doors stay closed for a little while. I've been part of organizations and churches that have had really incredible opportunities put before them. Opportunities for influence, opportunities for ministry, things that are just there. All you have to do is walk out and grab it. I've seen situations that are pretty near miracles. Are you, you're, you're telling me what? We have a chance to do what? But these are all opportunities that in order to be seized, we're going to require a little more work, a little more time, a little more sacrifice, a little bit more commitment, a little bit more money. It's going to require you stretch yourself, but it's all just laying right there. All you have to do is get up and go out there and take it. That's all you have to do. There's the promised land, right? There's, there's the thing that God has sent us to do. And you see that, and I've, I've been in the situation I think several times where there's the promised land and out come the excuses of why we can't do that thing that's sitting right there in front of us, that opportunity. Knees start shaking and hands start trembling because of the giants, because of the challenges, because of the things that are standing out there. And then what happens? Well, the window closes and there's not another opportunity waiting right behind it. For a while, there's, that was the chance. That was the thing. That's what Jesus was calling you to do. And now we missed our window of opportunity. And now we have to drop back. And we have to drop back for a while. Uh, the end of Hebrews 10 talks like this. And, and, and listen to this closely, what, um, what, what we read there. He says, uh, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Do not cast away your confidence. When Jesus opens the door, you, you walk through it. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. Any who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We don't, we don't shrink back when there's an opportunity to be faithful, to use the influence and the resources that God has given us to make an impact. We don't, we don't shrink back. The just shall live by faith. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance. When Jesus sets before you an open door, don't draw back. Walk through the door. For Philadelphia, this encouragement to continue in faith comes with consolation. He promises them they're going to be vindicated for their faithfulness. In verse 9, he says this, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This is the second time in these letters that Jesus has referred to the synagogue as the synagogue of Satan. He calls the Jews in the synagogue, uh, he's, he's talking about false Judaism and he calls them liars. And so I'll take every opportunity when this comes up, I'll take every opportunity that the scriptures provide to remind us all that there is no such thing as a Judaism that is pleasing to God apart from the work of Jesus. There, there is nothing in the world called Judaism that God is really happy with and God is really pleased with. They just, uh, they just, they don't believe in Jesus, but otherwise they're okay. 
There is no remaining Old Testament religion in the world today that is trucking right along with a boatload of promises and blessings and divine protections despite rejecting Jesus as Lord. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not trust him as God's Messiah, then you don't believe the Old Testament. That's the bottom line. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in the Old Testament. You're not worshiping the God of creation. The God of a Christless Judaism is Satan. Uh, that's why Jesus says they're the synagogue of Satan. The God of a Christless Judaism is Satan. They're not true sons of Abraham. Jesus called them sons of their father, the devil. And unless they, they abandon their demonic, idolatrous religion, there is no life and there are no, there are no promises and there are no, there's no hope for them. That's true when Jesus said it in the first century and it's true today. The only category of promises left for them are the promises that are in Christ. They're, they're there's no life apart from Christ. They don't get a plan B of salvation. And that's what Jesus encourages them with here. Jesus tells these Christians that some of the members of the synagogue of Satan are indeed going to leave. They're going to come over and worship before your feet. And they're going to know that I have loved you. You're going to be vindicated. This has echoes of what Zechariah said after the time of the exile. He says, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And, and now Jesus repeats that similar promise and says, God is with you in the church. They will, they will have to confess that God is with you, that, that he's departed from the synagogue. He's left the temple. The door that Jesus has closed in the synagogue has opened in the church. The door that he's closing in the temple has opened in the church. Verse 10, he says, Behold, uh, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The coming hour that he's talking about is that period, that imminent period of tribulation that's coming upon the whole world that is the oikumene, that is the uh, ecumenical world, in other words, the empire. So this time of tribulation is coming on the empire to test those who dwell on the land. The land is going to be dealt with through the empire, through the convulsions of the empire. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, back, back in Daniel, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream about the coming kingdoms of the world. We all remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? And, and the statue of the different um, materials. Then they reflected Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And you remember that dream of the statue, how then a rock came hurtling against the statue and crushed the feet and it toppled the statue. That rock, of course, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was Christ. And that's what's happening here. This rock who is Christ is coming to topple to remove the kingdoms of the world and to place his guardianship and his rule over, over the kingdoms. So, so God delegated in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, God delegated rule to these empires for a time, but that was so he could set up the events of the first century. And now he's gonna turn it all over to his son. God gave the oikimene, God gave the world to, to Jesus. Likewise, when it comes to the land, God gave Abraham the promise of the land, and he gave Joshua and the tribes uh, the, 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 the conquest of the land. Uh, but the whole um, 
under, under David, he expanded the land, right? So there are all these promises about the land. But now in Christ, we don't have a small geographic area of conquest. The whole cosmos is sanctified. All of it is our holy land to conquer. All of it is our mission field. So what Jesus is saying is that in the, in the first century here, in this context, uh, there, there's all this upheaval as the old creation is being folded up and put away and everything is transferred to Jesus. And he promises to preserve his people through this hour of testing. So trouble is coming to the land through the convulsions of the world, through the empire, and it's all going to be turned over to Jesus. Verse 11, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He says, I've given you crowns. Don't abdicate your throne. Don't abdicate the authority that you have as Adam did. Don't forget your mandate to take dominion and to keep and protect. Don't do that. And he says, to the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the house of God. Now, so just as there are multiple descriptions of gates and doors of the temple, we also have a great deal of information about the pillars of the temple of God. The two main pillars at the front of the temple were so important that they had names. Can you imagine, you know, building a building and giving parts of the building names like that what what's that pillar's name what's that column's name well they did in the temple and one pillar was named yakin and one pillar was named boaz one pillar was named he shall establish that's yakin and one boaz in him is strength jakin or yakin stood for the priest and boaz stood for the king both both the priest and the king stand as pillars guarding the doorway to the temple do you remember the description of those pillars? They were eight feet tall. They were made of bronze, which means that in a very short period of time, what color were they? Green, right? You know how the Statue of Liberty is green uh, because it's copper and it oxidizes and it, and it turns green. Well, these pillars were brass and uh, after a short period of time, they would, have been, they would have been green and they had a capital of bronze lilies. And so it looks like this stylized tree with these with these flowers at the top of it. And from the top of the capital, in the description of the temple, hung uh, by chains, uh, bronze pomegranates. So they not only had a trunk and not only had boughs and flowers, but they also had fruit hanging from them. And these uh, pomegranates on chains, anytime the wind blew, it would have gonged against the side of the columns, right? It would go on to, against the pillars. So the, the temple's always making music. You know, the, the high priest had bells on the edge of his garment. So as he moved around the holy place, he always made music. And the temple always made music. You could smell the temple before you got there. You could hear the temple before you got there. It was, it was always making sound. And so these were, the, these were the columns that led to the front of the temple, these two big stylized artistic trees that made music, musical trees that, uh, that are guarding and holding up the roof of the temple. Before that, before the temple, the tabernacle had pillars of wood, boards overlaid with gold that held up the canopy of white curtains over the doorway. 
And way before that, the very first sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. Did it have any pillars? Well, it, it did. It had two pillars. It had two real trees, not artistic trees, real trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, holding up a canopy of, tree, uh, of leaves over the garden. So the point is, in every sanctuary, in every sanctuary, there are important pillars holding things up. And this points to the fact that Yahweh himself is the principal pillar who holds everything up. Where do we see God called a pillar? Well, he leads Israel as a pillar of cloud. His cloudy pillar fills the tabernacle on the day that the tabernacle is dedicated. God is the load-bearing structure that keeps everything standing, and he delegates that duty to Yachin and Boaz. He delegates that duty to the priest and the king. And in the new covenant, he delegates that that duty to his faithful people. And so he tells these people here, you are a pillar. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. These are people who have been discarded from the synagogue. They are people who have been discarded from their families and the pagan culture. They have been kicked out. They have been shut out. They have been locked out. And Jesus unlocks the door to his church, and he doesn't simply entertain them. He doesn't simply invite them to come in and sit around and, and moan for a little while. No, he installs them as pillars of his house. They are essential to the structure. They're not peripheral. They're necessary. They are uh, part of the, what makes it the, the building and the glorious house that it is. Now, um, if you remember the history, Yachin and Boaz were cut down and dragged out to Babylon, right? In the destruction of that temple, Yachin and Boaz were cut down. The priest and the king were cut down. The new pillars at Herod's temple, which stands when Jesus says this, th those pillars are going to be knocked down too. They're not standing today. They're definitely knocked down. But the promise of Jesus is that these pillars that he sets up in this house, they will not go out anymore. He says, I will make him a pillar and he shall not go out anymore because he's going to write his name on them. He wrote his name on two uh, pillars before. He wrote a name on those, but now... He says, I'm going to write my name on you. Jesus says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Three times, Jesus calls his father, my God. Remember what Jesus told Mary in the garden as um, on the day of resurrection. He says to Mary, I ascend to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. You think about that? How about that? Jesus says, my father is your father. My God is, is your God. Because of the work of Jesus, his father is our father. We worship the same God and have the same father that Jesus does. He writes his name on us. He told Pergamos that he would give them a new name, right? He says, I'll give you a stone with a new name written on it. Well, here's one of the names he gives us. We find out one of the names we get is the name of his father. That's what happens when you're adopted, right? When you're adopted, you take on your father's name. Well, he writes his name on us. And Jesus isn't stingy. Jesus isn't stingy with the affection or the attention of his father. He, sh he shares it with us freely. Here is my father. Here is my new son. Here's my new brother. Here's my new sister. And he shares the name of his father with us, even writes it on us, he says. Well, then this little letter, this little encouraging letter, notice that there's not a lot of correction here. There's, there's not a lot of um, uh, uh, upbraiding or rebuke the way that we've seen in some of these other letters. This is largely an encouraging letter, 
But it's all about the spiritual architecture of the church, the doors and the pillars, the, the things that give structure to the church, the things that guard the church. This gives us a picture of a church that has doors that are open, doors that are open, but protected. Even as we welcome people who have been cast off and locked out, we maintain that there are holy boundaries that cannot be transgressed. I've always said we want to make sure that the door to the church is as big and as wide as the door to heaven. What do I mean by that? I don't want to ever add things. Don't want to ever add things to the gospel or to make the church more restrictive than, than what God has clearly required. I don't want to close doors in ways that would exclude people that Jesus opens doors to. But once covenanted together, we discipline ourselves and we correct each other and we exhort and we encourage each other to faithfulness. So there's a vigilance and there's a guarding and a protective duty that Christ delegates to us. We also understand that it's Jesus who has the keys. He's the one who opens doors. He's the one who closes them. There have been various times where I've lamented that we don't have an opportunity to do this wonderful thing, or I think, well, it would be really great if we were able to do that thing over there and that ministry. We don't, I wish we could do something over there. But we don't have the money. We don't have the opportunity. We don't have the manpower, evidently, to pursue it right now. So what do you do? Well, you remain faithful in what you have been given. You stay vigilant. You watch. And when that door is open to you, you walk through it, but you, don't, you can't force it open. You'll just frustrate yourself and everybody around you. Jesus has the keys and pleasing him is the way to open doors and more and more opportunities. So be faithful with what you have. That's the encouragement he gives to the churches repeatedly. Be faithful with what you have, strengthen what remains and pray that he'll give you bigger and better and more influence and presence and more possibility in the community he's called you to serve. Well, when we think of Jesus opening a door or knocking at a door, one image that comes to our mind, I'm sure you've all got that image, at least most of us, over a certain age. We have an image of that painting that was in all the Christian bookstores. You know which one I'm talking about? It's Jesus. It's always a long-haired Jesus, right? He's always got really long hair, and he's standing at this garden door, and he's lightly tapping on the door. That's the image we have uh, when we think of Jesus standing at a door and knocking, you know, just kind of lightly tapping, you know, Jesus coming up in, at night and just kind of, I don't want to disturb anybody. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tap, just light tap on the door. And uh, he's a little anxious. He's wringing his hands. Boy, golly, I sure hope they let me in this time. Boy, I, I, I really hope they let me in. That's, that's the image that that picture gives. He, he's by himself, by the way. He's all by himself. And, you know, I just, if, if they just open the door, we could be friends. I, I just want to be your friend. Is that how Jesus comes and goes in the Gospels? Is that how Jesus comes and goes at the beginning of Revelation? Not at all. Um, we, we remember when Zacchaeus repents and Zacchaeus believes uh, in, in the Lord Jesus, what does Jesus say? What is the next thing Jesus says? Party at Zacchaeus's house. That's the next thing he says. And Zacchaeus is about to host a hundred of his closest friends uh, and Jesus at his house. Jesus says, I am coming to your house. And he brings a whole army of people with him. 
You see, when, when Jesus opens the door and when Jesus comes in, it's, it's not this quiet, personal, little, small thing. We don't have Jesus tapping at doors. We have Jesus breaking doors down. We have Jesus opening doors. And when Jesus opens a door to us, it's not this invite to come in and be miserable. It's not an invitation to come in and be, let's all be bored together. You know, I don't know, what, watch, you know, Lawrence Welk or something. It's not this, I'm just thinking the most boring thing I can think of. It's, it's not. It's not this very sad, thin, little experience. When Jesus opens a door, he flings open the doors to a great banquet, to a great feast. The kind you hope that you would get an invitation to. The kind of thing you always wanted to be invited to. And when Jesus opens the door, he says, there is life in here. There is joy. There is blessing. There is communion and fellowship with God and, and the Son and with the Holy Spirit and with all of his people. That's what Jesus does when he opens a door. That's how he invites people into his kingdom. And as his little gatekeepers, as his sub-gatekeepers, we have to open doors the same way. We're called to open the door to feasting and life and joy and blessing and opportunity. That's what he models for us. Uh, access has been granted. Access is free through the blood of Jesus. Access is, is available. That's what he calls us to, and that's what he models here in this very encouraging letter to this church in Philadelphia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to help us to more and more imitate and model your son Jesus. We ask you uh, that you would give us this grace uh, to understand what he does in uh, flinging open the door to a great banquet and that we would do the same. Uh, Father, uh, be with us as we continue to worship and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.